T.S. Eliot said, uh, how wild it was to let it be, to let it be. And uh, I think that it starts really young for us as people, as humans, um, even uh, as young as just a tiny little baby, uh, this uh, hold-on reflex. And if you've ever held a little tiny baby, and I, I had five, well, we had five, <laughs> and so I should make sure that's clear. Uh, so I know that thing where the baby grabs you in the face, and they're holding on, and you're like, hey, please let go of daddy, please let go of daddy. Or they're holding on to your hair, and they, and they hold on so tightly, and you're like, ah, 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 please let go of daddy, please let go, is what we say. Or when they're uh, in their twos, and they're, they're going around, and, and we, you know, they're, they're walking around the house suddenly, and, and then you see them, and they've got something in their hand, and you know that something is important that you find out, and you say, open your hand, come on, you show daddy what's in your hand, and mm-mm, mm-mm. And they just, they won't do it. And then, you know, it's like, it's, it's either like a dishwasher puck or it's candy, right? And you need to know which one it is, don't you? And so, you know, we're trying to, you're trying to open that hand. You're trying to get them to let go. And, uh, and then also when your son or daughter brings that special someone home and, and you, you like them, you'll say to your son or daughter, hold on to them. They're a keeper. Isn't that what we say? Hold on to them. It's like I'm preaching with the whales here or something. <laughs> Doesn't it feel like that? Just picture we're all in an aquarium. And right behind me, there's a, there's a big whale. And it's just, it's beautiful, the whale. Can you just hear it and see it? Just picture it. Just let it be there. And that sound will bother you a lot less. Yeah. <laughs> you want me to step back? Okay. Oh, it's my problem. Maybe. So that's better? If I stay back here and I don't move. Okay. Okay, so just don't talk. <laughs> Phil, you are in trouble today. Um... I was in the middle of a whole story here about holding on. Do you remember a long time ago? Talking about holding on. Uh, the other one would be if, if your spouse was struggling with something at work and they were saying, you know, I'm, I'm fighting for this thing. And you, you would say, you know, if you thought they were in the right, you'd say, well, hold your ground. Hold your ground. You're in the right. And we have all these expressions and these pictures of like us holding on. And so this morning, it's going to be a challenge when Paul presses on that, on that hold-on reflex, and challenges us for something different. Paul's been painting a picture for the Colossian church and for us about what the Christian life is meant to look like. And he didn't start with a list of sins we should avoid. He, he actually started by making a really big deal about Jesus. In fact, the claims Paul makes about Jesus are staggering, they would be foundationally altering for some people. Like earth-shaking, and they're meant to be. 
Paul starts with what we believe about Jesus. And then he tells us what, that, what, what a life that's centered around that would look like. How it would be shaped. He says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Minds and hearts fixed on heaven. Lives and hope anchored in the all-sufficiency of Jesus. His death and resurrection. His power. His presence. This good news story. And a new wardrobe. That's what we talked about the last two weeks. Clothing that brings us joy and that identifies us as Christians. Put off these things and put on these things and put off these things, put on these things. And now this morning it's let. Let. So let's pick up our passage. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. 15 to 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's beautiful. So we respond to God by gratefully letting him have his way in everything, in everything. We respond to God by gratefully letting him have his way in everything. Let peace rule. There's a story of a guy, I named him Freddy, but he could have any name really. And Freddy's walking, hiking along the edge of a canyon, and suddenly the ground gives way, and Freddy starts falling down the canyon, and he grabs onto a tree root that's just sitting there hanging. So he's hanging by this tree root, and he, he's terrified, and he looks down, and he realizes he's, he's a thousand feet above this canyon, and if he falls, he's going to die. And so he starts going, help, help, please help someone, help. And, and there's no response. So he keeps calling and calling and calling. And then finally there's this voice that says, Freddie, can you hear me? He says, yes, I can hear you. Where are you? Where are you? And uh, the voice says, I'm everywhere. And then Freddie says, um, um, are you, are you God? Are you God talking to me? And the voice says, yes, I'm God. And I can see you. And Freddie says, well, then please help me. I'll do anything. I'll stop sinning. I'll, I'll trust you with my life. I'll follow you. I'll, I'll go to church. I'll, you know, I'll do whatever. Just please save me. Save me. And God says back, okay, well, you know, easy on the promises that, you know, you may or may not keep. But I will help you. I'll save you. Do you trust me? Can you trust me? And Freddie says, yes, I'll trust you. Please just save me. Just save me. And and. and God says, okay, then I need you to let go. And Freddie says, is there anyone else out there I can talk to? It's like, it's not that funny of a joke. Letting go is hard. I, I'm not letting go. Like you, well, you're supposed to just let go? That's really hard, letting go. Especially when we think it's us holding everything together. Don't we? 
Don't you in your life feel like you're holding it all together just barely, maybe sometimes? But it's on you, right? And it's on me. Doesn't it feel like that with God sometimes? Like, I'm holding on to God, and I better keep holding on because, man, this doesn't feel very safe here. Like, I could just let go. What would happen? You would fall like Freddy to his death. No. (laughs) What would happen? Well, maybe you'd fall. But I mean, there's a lot of stories in the Bible of people who let go in trust and who found a trustworthy God. Like one or two stories. Or maybe hundreds. All these stories, people learning to trust, people learning to let go, marching around cities with trumpets and falling walls, enemy armies routed with clay pots and and shouting and more trumpets. Small and weak men and women empowered to do amazing feats. And of course, they all had to learn to let. Like think of Esther even. She's going in. She's got to let go before she goes into the king. I mean, all these people, story after story after story, letting. Letting what? Letting peace rule. The word rule is, um, so it's the New Testament's in Greek. So this is a Greek word. Brabuo is the word. And it means to arbitrate or govern. And it's translated rule, but it, it... It actually can be used like with an umpire or to decide or determine or direct to control or to rule. And so maybe instead of picturing a king, which is what I picture when I hear the word rule, I picture like a king. Maybe it's better to picture an umpire. An umpire, like peace is the umpire. Like he's the one who's calling the game. He calls the strikes and the outs. He ejects the unruly managers and players. You can rage against his calls, but... You could also let peace rule. There's a story of, in uh, Major League Baseball of uh, a manager. So I don't watch a lot of baseball, but if you watch baseball, you'll know this happens a lot where the manager leaves the dugout and runs up to the umpire and they have these arguments about calls that the umpire makes. So in this one particular case, the, the coach ran up to the umpire and everyone was watching and there was lots of arm gesturing and looked like shouting and all these things, and then he kicked the dust, and then he walked back, and what actually happened was the coach, or the manager, went out to the, to the umpire, and he was there, and he was gesturing, and and he said, um, ump, I just need you to know that we've got a full home crowd here, and they're all expecting me to argue this call, but I agree with what you called. That is a strike, but if you would just work with me while I do this here with you, and the umpire said, okay, yeah, I'm okay with that. And then he said, so what did you have for dinner? And the ump told him, this is a true story. So was, what, what did you have for dinner? He tells him, and then he's like, okay. And then he's like, send me back to the dugout. And then he's like, yes, get back. And then the coach kicks the dirt at the umpire and storms back to the dugout. And I feel like we can, we can kick dirt. We can like not, you know, like argue and need to make a big stink or, or whatever, But in the end, I think you and I know that it's worthwhile to let peace have its way, to submit to peace. Even though we're kicking the dirt or we're going up to the big argument, but in the end, you and I both know that's what we want. 
We want peace to rule, to arbitrate, to, to guide and direct, don't we? But sometimes it's hard to let something rule if you don't really know what it is. And I think we have this idea with the word peace. I have these pictures with the word peace. I picture when I, when I say peace or when I see the word peace, I picture quiet. Like that's what I want in my house, peace. <laughs> Meaning quiet. <laughs> sometimes, some, sometimes. And so we picture this peace or quiet, or maybe you picture like a dove flying down and it's like, oh, there's peace. The dove flying down or a white flag, or it's like the hand gesture. Hey, dude, peace, man. It's like we, we have these different things that we think of as peace. And so it's weird to say, let peace rule. But Paul is very specific about what peace he's talking about. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And that peace is talked about in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. That kind of peace. Or Colossians 1.20, Paul's already talked about it. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this peace is not passive. It's not a passive peace. It's a peace that to rule you that, that is the peace of Jesus that he won at the cross and he offers to you. And it's called the peace of Christ, or in the New Living Translation, it says the peace that Christ gives. And Jesus talks about this peace. He says right before he goes to death to his disciples, peace in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And there's again the word let. Like, don't let trouble rule you or fear rule you let peace rule or philippians 4 7 paul writes this and the peace of god which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in christ jesus this peace does not sound passive it sounds active like it's guarding our hearts and we're choosing to let it rule or govern in our lives it's not quiet no conflict living it's a restorative kingdom life of which peace is ruling. It means we don't live in a frenzy or a, or a state of anxiety or worry or fear. But as Christians, we're confidently surrendered to the work of Jesus in our lives and our hearts. That's what our lives should look like. If they don't always. And I always think of peace as being an internal thing. Like, okay, I'm going to go work on my peace. It's down, it's in here somewhere. I'm going to get peace. You know, it's kind of that idea of like, go meditate and you'll find peace. You know, it's like an inner peace. It's inside of you. And that's what matters. And, and Paul says, sure, okay, but it's not just an internal thing. Because he won't let us stay there. He says, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. And he reminds us of that with the picture of the body, which is Paul's picture for the church. He uses it a lot. So when Paul says body, often he means the church. It's his church picture. The body works together. It communicates. It works things out. It operates under the one head, which is Jesus. This is the picture. So peace is internal and it's external. It's inside of me 
an internal arbitrator ruling in my day-to-day, but it's also a thing that's outward. It's happening in my relationships. It's happening in our church. It's a community directive, like love. Like we say, we're all agreeing love is going gonna, is gonna to win the day here. And we're also all agreeing peace is, is, is the thing that's going to have the final word in our relationships. Internal and external. And Paul says, let the word dwell. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And this word, word, so don't be confused. The word, word, the word, word, is the word logos. And if you've ever heard that word before, it's a Greek word, and it means word. Crazy, I know. But there's different meanings for it. So it can be a a spoken word. It can mean, uh, like, um, John uses it in his gospel to talk about Jesus. It's like a name for Jesus. So when Paul says, the Logos became flesh, he's meaning Jesus. So Jesus is this word. Jesus is the word. And it also can mean, like, teachings or sayings. So it could be, like, the words of Jesus, the Logos of Jesus. And so as we look at it, we say, well, what, is, what word is dwelling in us richly? What does that mean? And probably the, the best interpretation of this, the best idea, would be to say that it's what Paul was already talking about. Paul was already talking about the word. He does it in Colossians chapter 1, and he, this is what he says. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, logos, same word, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So Paul says, let the word of truth, the Jesus message, the gospel truth, take root and bear fruit. It sounds a lot like dwelling richly, doesn't it? In fact, it might remind us of what Jesus says. When Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's the word dwell or Um, Make your home or remain like a branch in a vine. Dwell. Let the word dwell in you. Now, I I do premarital for different people um, who who asked me, and a few months ago I had a non-Christian couple call me up and they said, we'd like you to do our premarital. And they had someone, a different pastor somewhere that they had a connection with had said, oh, do premarital in your own town in Maple Ridge. And so Jonathan, we know Jonathan. And so I said, sure, I'd love to do that with you. And so they came. And so we started doing premarital together. And so we did all these different sessions on, um, you know, marital wisdom. And so we talked about, you know, good tools for connection and communication, conflict resolution. We talked about understanding love languages and, and different things to do with marriage. And then the last session, so this week, When they came in and sat down, I said, I need to tell you something. And what I need to tell you is what I think is the most important thing that will help you to have a marriage that will go the distance. So that's what we've been talking about. Having a marriage that will go the distance. And so I said, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you what I think is the most important thing to have your marriage that goes the distance. And they said, oh yeah, tell us what is this thing. And then I shared the gospel story. 
I said, it's Jesus. Jesus. And I told him the story about how God made us for relationship. And even in the perfection of the garden, we chose not to trust God. We chose to rebel. And we broke the world and we broke our relationships with God and with others. And damage was done. And then God sent Jesus to reconcile us, to restore relationship with him and with others. And to fill and empower us to live in a new way. And now our hope is in Jesus when he finally makes everything new. Because it still looks pretty broken. That's our hope. And so I shared this whole story. And I said, this is what to me is the, mo- is the most helpful, most important thing. Is that Lauren and I both live our lives around this solid thing. Not around our family. Not around just our marriage or our house or where our kids go to school or this thing or that thing, our marriage is centered around this one thing that is unshakable. Jesus, what he's done and what he's doing for us. And I wasn't exaggerating because the truth is this reality affects my marriage. It softens my heart all the time when I'm storming around. How dare she call me on that thing? That is her problem, not my problem. Oh, Lauren. Oh my goodness. Why did God even give me this woman? As I'm storming around, the Spirit of God softens my heart. And you're like, what is wrong with you, man? This is you. It reminds me that I make mistakes, that I need grace, that I need to forgive other people when they wrong me, that I live in sacrifice. I live for sacrifice, not for ha- just to be happy. I live for sacrifice. And in that, I do find happiness. And it shapes my behavior in all areas of my life, not just my marriage. This gospel changes everything. And again, Paul won't leave us alone. Isn't that our tendency? We're used to going off and figuring things out or to relating to God on our own. And we'll say to each other, oh, religion is personal. It's, it's really none of your business what I end up doing or what I, you know, deep down believe about God. You know, to each his own. You're there, I'm here. You know, that's good for you, good for me, you know. And we have these things we say or think. And Paul, he uses words like teaching and admonishing one another. Is, is there a better trigger word that we could have than admonishing? Like, let's be honest. I'm going to admonish you. Boop. It's like I might as well push the button, right? You'd be like, whoa, man. Admonish? Whoa. That's like not a, that's not a nice word. And yet, admonish really just means to warn or exhort or to reprove gently. So it's it's actually not that bad of a word. To reprove gently, that sounds not so bad. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians when he says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. In that, it sounds like nicer. He's like, I don't want to make you ashamed. I want to admonish you. Isn't that the same thing? No, it's different. We have this, speaking of children's stories, we have this story of the, the emperor's new clothes, which I, I assume most of you have heard, if not everyone, but it's the story where the emperor um, gets these guys to make his clothes and they're con artists, so they say, you can only see the clothes if you're really smart. And then they pretend to make clothes and there's no clothes. And everyone 
is worried that they're the stupid one and they can't see the clothes. So no one will admit that there's no clothes. And so this ruse goes all the way along until the emperor puts on his new clothes, which are no clothes. And then he walks down the street in a parade wearing his nakedness, not his clothes, because there are no clothes. And everyone goes along with it. No, everyone's afraid to say like, because they don't want to be the one until it's like a little boy or girl says, mommy, why is the emperor naked? And then everyone's like, oh, right? This is the story. I feel like this is a little bit like our culture. All of us go along and, and we're just going to go along with each other and we're never going to really say anything because we don't want to be the one to say the, the thing that's hard. And so as much as we walk together and we, we talked about the word tolerate last week, the other side of that is that we walk together and we never say anything at all. We just pretend. And that's not real community either where we just pretend with each other. We want to build real, something real, where we speak the truth in love. That's the picture. And this genuine and honest community that we're trying to build would be filled with worship and gratitude because they go together. This is what Paul says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's funny he lists all those three things because uh, they would have psalms, songs they sang from the Bible. So from the book of Psalms, that's what the psalms were. They were, list, you know, all these different songs. And so they would have songs from psalms and, just to be a tongue twister, and they would have hymns. Like we talked about when we did Colossians 1, that a part of that sounds like a hymn, like a song that they would sing. Um, lifting up and exalting Jesus. And they also had other songs, spiritual songs. So don't even know what those were, what they sound like. Maybe they're more like choruses or different things. But all of these different types of music and singing was meant to lift our gaze to Jesus, meant to lift our hearts. That's why we, when we gather, we do some very specific things together. We're intentional. When we come together, we sing a song, and then we have a call to worship. And in that call to worship, usually it's a psalm, or maybe it's a different part of scripture that we're reading out. And then we sing songs, or psalms, or choruses, or hymns. Today we kind of sang all those. Some old, some new. And that's what we're doing. And then we pray together. That was the prayers of the people, lifting up our needs. And then we listen to the preaching of the word, which should be more than just explaining the Bible. Like, oh, let me explain it so that you understand, which would be nice, which is good. But it should be more than that. It should be that we dwell richly in Jesus, who's coming and who's transforming our hearts with his word. And then we share in communion, which is, we call it the Eucharist, which means gratitude. And every week we're reminding that each other that Jesus qualifies us. It's not that we qualified ourselves, it's that he did. He makes us whole, and it's his broken body, and it's his bloodshed. That's the picture. And so we're encouraged as we go, hopefully. Maybe we would say we leave with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Which is just what Paul says. That's our hope and our intention. And then Paul says to do everything. So I looked up the word... Uh, He says, whatever you do, do everything. And so I looked up the word everything in the Greek because it was worrying me what 
Paul would mean by that. And I found that it doesn't mean everything. It just means some things. So you'll be relieved, as I was. It just actually means church stuff. It doesn't mean your business or your school or your neighborhood. Not when you're at the Whitecaps game or the grocery store line. It's not your commute. It's really just about singing and about Bible reading and praying and when you're doing God talk. This is sarcasm. And I'm not doing it in the name of the Lord. So I'll stop now. The word everything, big surprise, means everything. It's a word we've seen before even. It, it, pause is the word. It means all things. Or it can be translated as the totality. The totality. Everything, all that exists. That's what the word means. And the, the passage literally has this word twice. It says, whatever all you do, whatever pause you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. So it's actually got the word twice. And when you, we see it twice, we should be thinking, wow, the word all, pause, the totality. Where have we seen that word a lot? If you were here in the fall, you might remember. We saw it in this passage. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, same word, He might be preeminent for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. And if you aren't triggered by the word pause, which is the Greek word, they sure would have been because they heard it so many times in the part before as we should when we hear it. And we should be thinking, action flows out of belief. What we're doing flows out of what we know about God, who he is and what he's done. And so if Jesus lays claim to everything in our lives, it stands to reason that we would do and say everything in his name. Doesn't it? Doesn't that just make sense? Like what part of your life doesn't fit under everything. What, what part of your life doesn't fit under everything? When you're like, oh, I'm so, ooh, I'm so worried about this. It's like, does that fit under everything? The situation at work? My health diagnosis? My great finances? My struggling finances? My Netflix to watch list? Recess at school? My parenting? My spouse? my downtime, my food consumption, my fear, my sex life, my video games, my hospitalized friend with no colon who's not hospitalized anymore, my grief, my pride, my hopes and dreams, my disappointments, my doubt. What exactly doesn't fit under everything? Everything, all things, the totality of your life, Paul says, flows under 
eukatasteo, this word thankfulness or gratitude, giving thanks in everything you do. You know what? So often I think, I'll be honest, so often I think, if you'll just fix this, then I'll be grateful. Like, then I'll be thankful. God, if you'll just like, you know, make there be more money in this account or like to fix this problem or this relationship or this situation, then I could be grateful. Then I could be thankful. I like my, would just well up out of my heart. If you would just fix this and then I could be thankful. That's not the story in the Bible. In fact, God gives this warning to the people of Israel as he's leading them into the promised land. Oh, the promised land. It's milk and honey. It's like, oh, it's flowing. It's just this incredible place. God gives this warning. He says, when the, Moses gives this warning through the, from the Lord. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the warning. Or we could call it an admonition. Don't forget. Remember Remember, whether it's going awesome, everything's just clicking, you're living in the blessing, flowing down from heaven, money, people, all, everything's just like, it's just like, wow. Remember. And when you're walking a road of, of suffering and of pain through the, through the valley, through the valley of death, David calls it. Oh, the same thing applies. Remember, remember. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, sometimes I go to God and say, God, if you never answer another prayer while I live on this earth, I will still worship you. As long as I live and in the ages to come for what you have done already. And then he says, God's already put me so far in debt that if I were to live one million millenniums, I couldn't pay him for what he's done for me. Like, what a good practice just in life to say, I just, I'm going to go before the Lord and just say, I'm praying for lots of things. I'm asking you for lots of things. But if you didn't answer, like those guys who get into the fiery furnace and they say, yeah, we're going to go in right now. But if God doesn't save us, it won't change anything. Or if he does, great. But like, it won't change anything because we're already set. Our gaze is fixed. So whatever you do, wherever you are, whatever is happening, there's this picture of Eucharisteo. It's this grace for gratitude. And actually in that word, Eucharisteo, is this middle word, charis, charis, charis. I don't know however you say it means grace, thankfulness. It's in the middle of the word. There was a guy uh, lived in the 1800s and uh, his church, his name was Horatio and his church uh, said he was cursed. Basically, he went to a Presbyterian church and they just say that about everyone. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, I don't mean that. I'm sorry. 
That's not true. This particular church said, Horatio, you must be cursed because your life is so bad, so horrible. And so, and and what happened is in the great fire of Chicago, um, Horatio's two-year-old son was killed in the fire. And not only that, the fire wiped him out financially. So all his business interests just went up in flames and he was left with, with nothing. And so he and his wife and his, he had four daughters left. They said, let's go to Europe and in Europe we'll start over and we'll try to make a go of it. And so as they were getting on the boat to go, he ended up having to stay and sign papers. There was a bunch of stuff that still needed to be done business-wise. And so he sent his family on ahead, filled out the papers And then heard back that the ship they were on sank. And so his wife survived and she sent him a telegram. And the telegram just said, saved alone. Alone. His family wiped out. This guy gets on the boat and is sailing for Europe to meet meet up with his wife. And as he crosses the ocean around where the other boat sank, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You can't make that up. You can't manufacture it. You can't just talk yourself into that. I mean, that's, it's mind-blowing. How do we get that? That kind of reaction in that kind of situation? In Christ. Paul says it's through him. Abide. Make your home there with him. Live there. Let peace rule. Let the word dwell in you richly. Let the fruit of Jesus come out in your life. And in those moments, that's what's there. You experience it through him, through Jesus, in whom we live and move and have our being, in whom all things hold together. So we respond to God by gratefully letting him have his way in everything. He says, let peace rule. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could live our lives in tightly controlled, anxious worry. He died and rose again to reconcile us to make peace through his blood. This peace is meant to rule, to arbitrate our everyday lives, to flow like oil. And he says, let the word dwell richly. Jesus didn't come just to be a teacher of Proverbs and wisdom, although there's a lot of wisdom in what he said. Jesus came to rescue humanity. He came to free us and empower us to live in a new way by his spirit. And that's meant to transform us. It's meant to change our lives the way they look by his grace. And it's everything. 
It's everything. Jesus didn't claim to be the totality so that we could live little segmented lives. Oh, this part belongs to me and that part belongs to God. And this part belongs to the church and this part belongs to my family. No. He came to declare victory and claim a kingdom that encompasses everything. All. All your life is meant to flow in grace under the banner of gratitude because of who God is and what he's done. And what he's still doing. Let's pray.